You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. There's a lot that I could say that I'm not going to say because my parents will hear it. <laughs> and like, I don't, I don't want them to be uncomfortable to a certain extent. But I think that Phoebe has been able to unlock aspects of her songwriting without worrying about saving people's feelings. And it's almost like her music just can like touch anything because of that. And also you can write a song and know that it's not about you, you know, it's, it's about the song. And so it can come from a personal experience, but you're creating something. There's like no such thing as nonfiction. Everything is fiction. Being back here makes me hard in the face. This is Lucy Dacus, and I have a new record called Home Video on Matador Records. Memories weighing on my brain, hard and heavy in the basement of your parents' place. Lucy Dacus moved away from her hometown in Richmond, Virginia, not long after the end of her first tour. Her critically acclaimed debut album, No Burden, had what she described as a funhouse mirror effect on her. It distorted how she saw herself. She felt embarrassed that people she had known for most of her life were now treating her differently because of her success or what she had revealed in songs. Yet, she didn't retreat or hold back in writing her follow-up, the aptly titled Historian. Home Video, her latest album, is more personal than ever. Family VHS tapes and her childhood journals were source materials. She reflects on formative memories, often centered around her struggle to square her faith with a queer identity. are pretty direct, so Lucy felt obliged to show them first to the friends she had written about. But how does an artist decide whose permission we need to tell our stories? Before we find out how working with Boy Genius bandmates Phoebe Bridges and Julian Baker helped Lucy some way in unlocking a newfound confidence, she takes us back to her childhood in Richmond where she grew up aware that she was adopted and questions if the dissociative tendencies she experiences as an adult might have plagued her much earlier. So my mom is also adopted. And when I say mom and dad, those are the people that raised me. And so she, I think, really knew how to handle it well. They bought a Mr. Rogers book 
about adoption and read it to me as a child. And it was just such a beautiful depiction of adoption where the parents are like, we really wanted you in our family. And so we're so happy that you're here. Your birth parents were so generous to realize that you fit with us. You know, just like these beautiful, beautiful things that were like a bedrock of my understanding. I felt luckier than like all other kids, you know, which for better or worse, I was chosen, you know, like I'm really supposed to be here. My mom's policy was basically like, I'm not going to tell you anything, but if you ask anything, I'll know that you're ready to know and I will answer you. On my birthday, for a good stretch of years, I would ask her a couple questions about my birth family and she would tell me. And I've been thinking more recently what that must have meant to her because she never got to know anything about her birth parents. Um, She was actually recently cleaning out my grandmother's house and found a document that told her what would have been her last name. And I think it impacted her a lot because she didn't get any sort of details like that growing up. I have a younger brother that I grew up with, and I actually found out when I was maybe 16 that I have an older biological brother who's 10 years older than me. (laughs) And we've never met, and I don't know much about him. A perfect day growing up probably included at some point me sitting under a tree and reading, which sounds so idyllic and is still kind of an aspect of a perfect day. (laughs) I feel like I liked the outdoors, but I really like to be still and notice things and get lost like in the movement of the trees and I don't know if it was some sort of like meditation that I wouldn't have called it that. Or again, like I've just been trying to realize my dissociative habits from an early age because I've I've dealt with that so much through COVID that um, I'm realizing like, wait, this has been a lifelong thing. Um, But yeah, it's sometimes it feels really pleasant and sometimes it feels kind of scary, but I associate earlier in life it feeling more pleasant. Um, I've been thinking so much about how much I read as a kid, like even as like a pre-verbal child, I would just like flip through pages of books and pretend to read them to my parents, even though obviously I couldn't. And I've always thought like, that's a really nice aspect of who I am. But I've recently been wondering, like, was that an early form of dissociation? Like, was I just not engaging with the world and did I prefer storybooks to like what was reality and I don't know I'm I feel like reading is a a widely celebrated activity and like maybe academic or intellectual I think maybe it's underrated as like an escape and maybe like fearful (laughs) activity What were you fearful about? I mean, even at a young age, what do you think it was? I think all the basic fears of just like people not liking me or not being able to make friends, not getting incorporated into the web of life and being left alone. Um, 
I feel like I was kind of like an awkward kid when I was maybe like seven to 10 and definitely through middle school, but that's a different story. What was the story there? Well, I had a couple friends, just like very few. And a lot of them I went to church with and I didn't have as many friends at school. So before getting to middle school, well, first I thought that the rapture would happen before I got to middle school. <laughs> I And I don't know if you know about what the rapture is, but it's like the day that God takes all of his believers up to heaven. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I don't have to worry about middle school because I just know, you know, before I turn 10, I'm going to get to go to heaven. I'm going to be sucked up like alien abduction. And it didn't sink in until like the week before school and we were school shopping. I was like, oh my God, I haven't mentally prepared for this. I had watched all this Disney channel and everything that I saw showed me that nerds get stuffed in lockers. And I knew that I was a nerd because of all the reading and doing good in school and things like that. And so I was like, I need to find the popular people and I have to make them like me or else I'm going to have a horrible life. And so I did, like, I just was like, okay, all those girls are pretty and they're all talking. They're probably the popular ones. I'm going to sit at the edge of their cafeteria table. I'm going to bring the cool gum that they like and offer it. I'm going to like doodle their names for them. There were like all these little things at the time that like made you cool. Like I had really good handwriting. (laughs) I was kind of like the in-between for their romantic conquest. Like I would speak on behalf of the boys and back and Uh forth. It's weird. I've never had to behave like that since. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a memory of your childhood or even your teens that you don't really like to think about? I mean, a couple came to mind. (laughs) One, probably just because I was just talking about it, but my best friend in elementary school, I told her my plan of how we were going to survive in middle school. And I was like, we can become popular and we will be safe. And I want you to come with me. But if you're not up for it, I'm going to have to leave you. (laughs) And that's like probably the coldest thing I ever did. And yeah, we ended up not maintaining our friendship. So when did you kind of first realize that music had this power for you to take you somewhere else? It felt at first like a free pass into life because all my early music experiences were church and also musical theater, which is what my mom did. And then, yeah, going to middle school, I would make mixes. People would make me mixes of radio hits. Mm -hmm. But then closer to high school, I would meet people and learn what they liked and listen to all of it and feel like I could understand them better. So it was always about other people Mm. for a really long time. But then I started to like build my own taste And honestly, like Pandora was like the biggest thing for me in terms of building my own taste because I would just put on a station and if I liked something, I'd write it down and then look it up later. Sometimes I would go into the iTunes store search bar and just do a random word and listen to everything that came up. And I typed in like every color. I remember I typed in yellow and I came up with yellow by Coldplay and got into Coldplay because of that. Or I typed in blue and I got into blue October. I don't know if you know that band. (laughs) Or uh, I feel like there was one for orange that I'm not remembering now. But yeah, or I type in every month. And I remember I got into the band the early November from that. (laughs) And so um, 
realizing that like I could like music just for me and not as a passageway to other people was uh probably like maybe around 15. It's amazing. So when did you first like pick up a musical instrument? When I was five, my mom is a pianist. And so she tried to teach me because she started learning piano at five. And I just was ornery. I just told her, no, you're wrong about like facts. I would just like <laughs> say that she was wrong. She's like, cool. Well, I have no patience for you. And like I would pick up guitars like my dad had guitars. I would strum them. I would sometimes like pluck the strings without fretting any notes. But in all earnest, the first time that I like tried to learn how to play music was after I went to church camp in middle school. I just r remembered this, that I had a crush on the camp counselor and she had this acoustic guitar and was like playing covers. And I, you know, at the time didn't realize it was a crush, but I was like, oh, I want to be just like her. And so I went and bought a guitar and started learning it. And then a couple weeks later, I went to another VBS. I went to many of them like every year and met my first boyfriend and he loved Slayer. Obviously it's like in VBS. He also loved The Cure. And so he was like, our song is just like heaven. And I learned just like heaven on the guitar and like played it for him. Yeah, so sweet. Mm -hmm. So that was like <laughs> 13 years old. And then, so when did you kind of like decide that, hey, I want to be more serious about this because I understand you also at one point wanted to maybe be a filmmaker. You were interested in film as well. So it's interesting that home videos has such a cinematic quality about it. But then what pulled you the other way and made you think, I can write songs, maybe I can perform, maybe I can make a career out of this? Yeah, I wasn't convinced on it until it was already working. And even to this day, I have a hard time feeling like the ground is solid beneath me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do film because it felt like you can do anything within film. I would have been happy just being an editor or a festival coordinator or working on scores. Anything seemed cool mm -hmm. to me. Um, and I only dropped out for financial reasons mm -hmm. and started a band kind of like for fun and like toured because I lived at a house that used to have shows in it. And so we would host all these bands and I just mm -hmm. loved the idea of like, traveling and like playing music and using shows as a way to like see the world. And so that was like a hobby. Like my band would just do it when they were out of school on like spring break and stuff. But I was working a seasonal job and just between seasons, the music career kind of like started to happen and I just didn't go back. Lucy's debut, No Burden, was a critical hit showcasing her wry vocals and lyrical prowess.
every time I say no burden, immediately the I don't want to be funny anymore starts. <laughs> the, you know, the melody starts clinking around in my head. <laughs> That's sweet. Um, yeah, and Troublemaker Doppelganger. I think those are my like two favorites of that mm. album. It's a stunning debut, as Bob Boylan wrote on his top ten albums of 2016, and you on Rolling Stones as like ten new artists to know about. I mean. What was that like, like getting that reception for your debut, considering it was recorded in one day? That's pretty insane, right? And also, you yourself weren't quite sure that people would even listen to it. And then it winds up being huge. What did it feel like to you writing this thing and then getting this reception? Yeah, it felt really unexpected. In a lot of ways, it felt really cool, but it also felt like I was in danger <laughs> all the time. Like so many people were like, be careful, but really vague about what to be careful about. And I feel like that's a good blanket piece of advice because people do want to take advantage of you. People do want to just make money mm. more than do you a favor. That's business. People should not take advantage of each other, especially young, unexperienced people yeah, I won't, I won't go on a diatribe. But yeah, I, I was worried about like signing a deal that wouldn't be fair. Or I was worried about somebody flirting with me disingenuously to get something from me. And I was worried about my friends, all my relationships changing mm. because I was suddenly able to give them things. So yeah, it felt cool. And I'm really glad to be doing this. <laughs> it feels like such a gift. But yeah. I felt kind of like splintered in a way that I hadn't yet. I, I felt very like in my place in Richmond, in the music scene, working my little job, hanging out with my friends. I felt very whole at that time of my life. And immediately I felt really split up into bits. So it's interesting with that answer now, why did you name it No Burden? Because quite a few of the songs kind of suggest that everything is a little bit of a burden, actually. Um, um, I think the title of anything is obviously the first entry point for anybody. And so I kind of wanted to tell people that they were not a burden and that life isn't a burden. And also that even those songs, some of them are heavier than others. I think those are some of my most lightweight songs. There's like a song about having a crush and like traveling and it's not as heavy. Mm. But yeah, I think that even when experience is difficult, I don't want to find it burdensome. Like I, I want to like make use of it. I want it to be something that feels real and not separate from me. Like a burden is something that you're just carrying along. Whereas like, I want my life to feel like it's in my body, you know? And I, I want other people to feel that way too. So maybe that's why I haven't thought about it in a long time. She had the body of in Troublemaker Doppelganger, she touches on body issues and the sinister edge of a young girl knowingly using her sexuality to get what she wants. With the chorus, too old to play and too young to mess around, she hints at society's incredible pressure on young girls to pander to the male gaze while simultaneously punishing them. They couldn't have a new, but she had your eyes made for taking smiles and turning tides, hands full of young men. 
Yesterday, my roommates and I were talking bleakly about how <laughs> during COVID, it was like a slight reprieve from getting catcalled, <laughs> you know, staying inside and also more people being inside and wearing the mask and being more covered or something like, I, I think all of us are, you know, starting to walk around more, go to the park. And um, yeah, all of us are just getting harassed <laughs> and I'm like oh did I just get used to this and now I'm not used to it and now I'm really noticing it like it's really it has been affecting me more than ever in my life. Self-image and body issues are recurring themes in her music. How she looked was something that was brought to her attention from a young age by someone close to her and likely with the best of intentions. Yeah, I mean, my grandma was talking to me about my body from age like seven or eight that I can remember. I remember a memory of being eight and being on vacation with her and my brother and my parents went out to eat or something. And she got two bowls of ice cream. And so she put one in front of my brother and then I went to grab the other one. She's like, no, that's for me. You have to watch your figure. And so I just watched them eat ice cream. <laughs> How messed up is that? I love her, but I have plenty of stories like that. To this day, as much as she tries to be positive about her own body, it's a challenge when people around her obsess about their size. I had this revelation a while ago where it's like, even if you're not being told like you're fat, if someone is calling themselves fat and they're skinnier than you. That is hurtful. When people hate on their own bodies, it's so immediate, you know, the comparison to wonder like, okay, so if they think they look horrible, they must think I'm ugly. <laughs> and like, you know, internally, so much of that is about just, per you know, I have friends that say that to me, they're like, you're beautiful. It's just like my problem that I don't think that I'm beautiful and I'm skinnier than you, you know, and I'm like, okay, I get that. But, you know, you should try to, if you think I'm beautiful at the size that I am, you know, I just wish you would be easier on yourself and not hurt yourself. With the death of her grandmother, Lucy's next album, Historian, deals with mortality and endings and the kinds of stories we want to tell about ourselves. Historian you talked about artistic activism. Can you tell me a bit more about that and why you felt a need for it in the album or, or in your life at that moment? So like since No Burden wasn't really planned, I feel like I didn't really, I wasn't intentional or aware of the responsibility that comes with having like an audience. And so historian, I was like, okay, I am realizing the position I'm in is 
very charged. And so I want to make something that reflects that awareness and lets people know some like pretty core things about me before I proceed. In yours and mine, Lucy also tackles what it means to stand up for something you believe in. She was on tour in Europe in 2015 when she first saw the news about the Baltimore protests in the wake of Freddie Gray's death at the hands of police. She wrote her protest song about her complicated feelings of what it meant to call America home. So I kind of like tackled some of the hardest things that I think about, just like loss of identity, loss of life loneliness, panic. Obviously, I've written one breakup song, Night Shift. The first time I tasted somebody else's spit, I had a coughing fit. I mistakenly called them by your name. I was let down, it wasn't the same. Like just things that I that feel like very basic, like that's what I wanted to get out there. And I was saying in interviews then, that's like the record that I had to make in order to make everything else. And I really do feel that way. Like home video was more of a surprise to me because Historian had such a purpose and home video kind of like came out of nowhere. But before home video and central to its production and writing were two other essential bodies of work. The first was a Boy Genius EP and the second a covers EP. It featured a handful of originals, plus covers of Phil Collins, Bruce Springsteen, and Edith Piaf. Called 2019, the singles were released around calendar highlights such as Valentine's, Mother's Day, and yes, Bruce Springsteen's birthday. So La Vie en Rose is like perfect for Valentine's, that one needs no explanation. I love what you do with it. <laughs> Thank you. But the Phil Collins one, it seems perfect now, but I would not have picked it, you know, in a bunch of songs for Halloween. Also, how did you just think this is what you want to do? You wanted to do a covers album, but you're going to go along with the holidays and kind of release it that way. Well, it wasn't on purpose. I just recorded La Vie en Rose and Dancing in the Dark, my mother and I, and all the originals, yeah. and then those two covers I just recorded because I had written them. And then I was like, man, these don't really feel like I can put them on a record. It's a shame that they're just sitting on my computer finished. <laughs> um, how can we put these out in a way that makes sense? And it kind of like all at once came together like, wait, I can just like fit them into calendar. Like Bruce's birthday is not a major <laughs> national holiday, but it's like a date that we chose and it's near my dad's birthday who's like a huge Bruce fan and we're like well if we want to do an EP let's just round it out we can do Halloween and Christmas Halloween there were so many options but I just love in the air tonight I kind of wanted to figure out 
how they did some of the stuff that they did. Mm. <laughs> and so it was a really informative recording process. And I think that what we learned in that session, we actually put into home video a lot, just like a lot of the learning about synths and that world of tones. Yeah. So the EP for me felt like a personal exercise that helped informed the production of home video. The one thing I'll say about that EP is that last Christmas, I hate Christmas. It's my least favorite holiday. I was like, I can't believe we're going to do a holiday EP without a Christmas song though. So I was like, let's just do this one and let's record it in a way so that it's obvious that I hate Christmas. <laughs> and so we literally like, we did not talk about the arrangement. It was just like me in a vocal booth, our drummer and bassist in the live room and the guitarist in the tracking room. We're like, all right, play this song angry. <laughs> And so we just like did it and I, we probably did two takes and it's my least favorite recording we've ever made. <laughs> but I mean, it did what it we set out to do, but every other recording I've made, I think that I'm kind of proud of, or I can at least stand by it. That one, I don't like it. I don't like Christmas. I don't like to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I don't listen to myself anyways, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's weird. It was a, that was a practice for me and like not taking myself too seriously. Whereas like not everything I put out has to be like perfect and immaculate. So this will be a nice, like humbling experience to put this out, but it bothers me that it exists at all, even though some people like it and I'm just trying to like recognize that it has its own, like, I don't have to like it. Yeah, It's funny. Cause I was reading a few people said that they liked the whole album, but I didn't like, the last Christmas one. I love the original. I love Christmas. When I listened to it, I loved it. I love that it's got a kind of bikini kill girl punk vibe to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess it is technically kind of fun, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's great that it the whole, just doing that kind of propelled you to then go on and experiment and know what you want to do with the production of the next album. I mean, that in itself is so valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I wanted to also just touch on a little bit about Boy Genius, like why you called it Boy Genius, because I feel like it ties in with how we're minimized all the time. Women, particularly in the music industry, like at all points from like plugging in and setting up at a gig right up to going to see your label and what they think is best for you. And to the point that women don't know how to smash a guitar the right rock and roll way, apparently, so, <laughs> which is ironic, right? Because you guys obviously like the music of Crosby, Stills and Nash and for David Crosby to come out, it just seemed like just weird. Yeah. One of the more exciting partnerships to come out of the indie rock scene in recent years is Boy Genius, the supergroup of Lucy with friends Phoebe Bridges and Julian Baker. As more young women pick up instruments and jostle for their rightful space in rock's cultural firmament, it seems some old men can't handle it. Boy Genius wore their inspirations on their sleeve. Their EP cover art was a nod to Crosby, Stills and Nash and the easy listening Californian rock sound of the 60s. Phoebe appeared on Saturday Night Live in February this year to promote Punisher, her second solo album. At the end of her set, 
she smashed her guitar on stage, subverting a male rock tradition in her own way. A minor storm soon ensued, with David Crosby wading into the argument. He chimed in on Twitter that guitars are for playing and called the stunt childish drama. I mean, what's amazing about, before I talk about Boy Genius, the like Phoebe smashing a guitar thing, is that everybody lame just snitched on themselves. Like anyone that had an issue with that just embarrassed themselves online <laughs> by having an issue with that. Like, it's like, okay, cool. Good to know that David Crosby is like a total lame sack of the past, <laughs> you know, like, um, I almost said with no disrespect, but I a little bit of disrespect. Like, why would you hate on somebody for something like that? And it, it, there is veiled sexism. And, you know, any if you say things like that, people are like, I'm not a sexist. I love my mom and I have tons of women friends, yeah. you know. But I think that it's important to acknowledge the ways that you are sexist. I mean, women can be yeah. sexist. I know that in points of my life, I have internalized sexism that has held me back, mm. you know. So it's funny because when I watched it before any of the hype, I was like, this is funny. Obviously, lots of people have done it. <laughs> it's Phoebe just like being a part of this history. It's so her. But then I think the conversations around it were equal parts annoying and important. But anyways, to answer your question about Boy Genius, the week that we were recording together, we were like kind of commiserating about all these shared experiences of people men <laughs> being um <laughs> fools <laughs> and like just treating us like we were stupid or interacting with creative people who clearly just had like the money and access and white privilege their whole lives to always think that every thought that came through their heads was genius or super valuable and how we wanted just for a moment to operate with no self-doubt, maybe even self-examination, just in order to like get our ideas out because there's so much internal blockage that happens where you say like, oh, that's not worth saying or that's stupid. And yeah, I think we were kind of making fun of all these people and also wishing that we could access that confidence a little bit. Mm -hmm. Must have been nice to see them again. Yeah, it always is. They're great. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really cute that we made space for each other. I mean, when you put all the songs that were on back to back, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> like all of the songs are about sort of the same theme. But that makes sense to me that we would be able to like speak on the same stuff together. Yeah. I mean, I think you've mentioned this before, even in the Under the Radar cover story two issues ago. I think you guys talked about it as well. It's like you're three women around the same age and embarking on this journey together and touring and crisscrossing the country and, you know, and the world together, actually. So it sort of makes sense. And I, I like the sort of takeaway from it that I think like women innately share this bond and, um, you know, and I don't know why for so long we've been pitted against each other. It's like there can only be one <laughs> when it's not true. It's you can yeah. all do your own thing. And, and that was like just a beautiful thing to see you guys do that. Mm -hmm. I think the non-competition aspect is like one of the best parts of it. Yeah, it's so messed up that 
women get pitted against each other or like any non-cis white demographic is told that there's limited space or that like there's specific space allotted the token whatever group that's all really messed up (laughs) I'm hoping that we're coming out of that so you guys have talked about learning from that experience as well like how valuable that was what's one thing that you learned from either Phoebe or Julian, like one specific thing that you now take away and you practice in your craft? Mm, I have to pick one thing. Oh, you can pick two? (laughs) (laughs) I guess for each of them, like Julian one time told me that the best art is selfish art. And that blew my mind because I thought that I was making art that was relatable because I was speaking about people on the whole or giving advice the way I would give advice to a friend, Mm. but people don't want to be preached to. Also to hear her say that as somebody who doesn't want to be selfish and like really does a lot in her life to refrain from selfish behavior. Something I've learned from Phoebe is that I don't know like whose advice this was initially, but she said it, you should write like you're an orphan, which struck me as odd but there's a lot that I could say that I'm not going to say because my parents will hear it (laughs) and like I don't I don't want them to be uncomfortable to a certain extent but I think that Phoebe has been able to unlock aspects of her songwriting without worrying about saving people's feelings and it's almost like her music is just can like touch anything because of that And also you can write a song and know that it's not about you, you know, it's, it's about the song. And so it can come from a personal experience, but you're creating something. There's like no such thing as nonfiction. Everything is fiction. (laughs) So how did you like approach this thing of wanting to write something kind of so personal? Yeah. I think that the want to do it is sort of irrelevant. (laughs) Like, I I wish I could just write what I want to write, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it just started happening. So I guess I was ready for it. And now I have to like live in the wake of it a little bit. Not like it's some action adventure movie, like really dramatic, but I do still feel like I'm kind of figuring it out. But I I think writing and sharing are different things. So Mm -hmm. I, I kind of write whatever's coming to mind, but it does feel kind of like, something new for me to be sharing things that are so personal. The songs on home video feel like diary entries. You've described it as a funhouse distortion of yourself that's in the press release that I think is so interesting. And Hot and Heavy has that kind of feeling of going back. So what was that like, writing Hot and Heavy? Well, I wrote it after coming home from our first big, long two-month tour in 2017, I think is when I actually wrote it. But the tour was 2016. So it was before Boy Genius, like before Historian. I didn't finish it then, but it's like the first time that I had that thought of like coming home and feeling embarrassed or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like almost sad to verbalize it because it made it real you know like there was a big part of me for a long time that was like maybe if I spend more time here it'll feel normal again or I'll feel like a part of it again 
but it never happened. And mm. I still love Richmond. I don't know. It just, I tried my absolute best to feel incorporated, but I could never get there. And is that why you moved to Philadelphia? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. Um, there were also some people figured out where I lived and that felt kind of scary. So <laughs> I didn't want to stay. So I have to say that's brave of you, given everything that you still felt that need to write this album and to be true to your muse, everything that was coming to you, to like stay true to it and still write this, given there's this weird thing that, that people suddenly feel like they know you or they have access to you, yeah, which happens to still go on and write in this kind of very visceral way. So thank you. <laughs> I applaud you for doing that. Seriously. Yeah. And um, so for VBS or Vacation Bible School, I'm into, I lived in a convent for a while. I told um, Julian when I did the interview with Julian Baker and I said, oh, we both had our like religious fantasies. And mine was that I was going to be called to oh be my a gosh. nun. Because yes. <laughs> I resonate with that. I really wanted to be a monk. And yeah, I just was like, that sounds like the right way to exist. You know, like, it's so extreme, you know, mm. like just living in full awareness and worship and being empty of every other thing, every aspect of the physical world. And like... It's your disassociation thing. Yes. I was like, what if I... <laughs> That's so true. I need to think about that more. It's, I, I think that I was always trying to find places where it was normal or celebrated to dissociate. And, um, dang, that's a really good insight. Yeah. I mean, that's, yep. <laughs> I'm going to have to journal about that later. So for VBS or Vacation Bible School, th that particular song, did you, have to have that conversation with your slayer loving ex-boyfriend about it before it, it came out into the world we haven't spoken for many years but it felt lighthearted enough that i probably didn't need approval also again it's a character now like they're the facts are from my life but that's just a, a fictional character at this point yeah. whether it was real or not actually somebody with his exact name shared it on Instagram and tagged yeah. me in it. I was like, oh my gosh, he saw it. But then I clicked on the profile and it was a different person. So I got that feeling in my gut of yeah. like, oh my gosh, the song has landed. But who knows if it has. Partner in Crime is another song that I actually love. I wrote that in my notes. Great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's got that, you know, a little bit more of an electronic feel about it, the processed vocals. And and I love that, do you love me, do you love me not, the way you say that as a hip-hop edge to it. And when you were talking about orange uh, as a color that you put on before to figure out songs, I was thinking of Frank Ocean. Yeah. There was something about that when I heard that immediately brought me to like Frank Ocean. I was like, oh, it's interesting. It's different uh, in the production as the other tracks. It also reminded me of Father John Misty, in his wow. album, where he has that one song, which is like different from the rest. That song is True Affection, of Father John Misty's album, I Love You Honey Bear. 
Some critics have found the song's presence on the record jarring. Its auto-tuned vocals and electronic synth instrumentation seems out of place on an album of largely piano-led ballads or guitar-based songs. But it's one of my favorites. It works on a thematic level because the song unironically is about trying to connect with someone without using electronic gadgets, and then he employs it to get his point across. In Lucy's case, you can see the song is an attempt for her to experiment sonically, but it works thematically too. Most of the other songs are about experiences with people who are the same age as her. Partner in Crime is the only romantic dalliance that's with someone older. So this more processed sound can serve to highlight this age gap. You just picked out two of my faves, though. Oh. <laughs> I love Frank Ocean and I love Father John Misty. I think they're two of the best songwriters. So yeah, thanks oh. for that. <laughs> Partner in Crime, I feel like I, I kind of wanted it to be a single, because I think it is like a fun song, but it's too different. I think it'll be nice as a surprise. Like when people are listening to the record and it's going, going, gone, which is just a single take, all of us in the same room song, pretty much no editing. And then the most processed song that I've ever done. I, I like that contrast. I definitely didn't show that to the person who it's about because it's about like a older person that I was dating and that was at this point I realize an abuse of power mm. so thumbs that I imagine you must have spoken to you, your friend about it. You've been playing that song for a while and like people have this visceral connection to that song. What I got from listening to it and some of the things that I've read about it is that song was as much about you being there for your friend it's also about your own relationship with your father. Was there something else going on there? Yeah, I definitely played it for her. And the song is like so much about that one event that we went to and we shared. Your dad has come to town. He'd like to meet. I said you don't have to see him. But for whatever reason. But the last line when I was writing it, I wrote it out for her, but then I read it back for me <laughs> I want to take your face between my hands and say you two are connected by 
by a pure coincidence Bound to him by blood But baby, it's all relative You've been in his fist Ever since you were a kid But you don't owe him shit Even if he said you did You don't owe him shit Even if he said you did It made me, like, cry. <laughs> um realizing that I needed to hear that and not realizing that I actually thought it. And like, if I could give her that advice, I needed to take it just because my um, birth father, I, we just like have kind of a a weird relationship and like, it's hard to, harder to communicate because English isn't his first language. And I don't know if he's breaking the boundaries or if he doesn't understand them in the first place. Um, but he definitely like wants more from me than I feel ready to give. So yeah, I, I still don't know like the fate of that, but yeah, I felt like I needed to hear myself say that. Who were like some of your heroes, people you were maybe looking up to or finding them as musicians inspiring in the way they carry themselves in their craft? It feels kind of hard to say because I I never tried to do music. <laughs> um, I don't feel like I'm directly inspired by that many people. Um, and I kind of want to keep it that way. Like I, there's people who inspire me, friends especially at this point in my life. But like Shaky Greaves was an inspiration when it came to playing guitar and Laura Stevenson was somebody who inspired me when it came to beginning to record because both of them made music feel more accessible and something I could just do, you know, like it made it less mysterious, like the way that they did things. I don't know. I, I think some people get by by copying and falling a little bit short of who they're copying, but then that's their per their personality or like that's the music that they make and nobody would know they were trying to copy somebody. But I don't think I have very direct influences. Why do you make music? Because you're kind of part of this guard of young women who are so brutally honest and you show that sort of slice of life Without that male gaze, which I think is so important, like a different angle on things, is it ever about giving your listeners or young girls out there this feeling that women out there are seen, that their stories are valid, you know? Just, yeah, why do you make music? I just always have. <laughs> I, I think that I need to do it in order to talk to myself. I feel like it doesn't really feel like an option. I know that sounds corny, but it just happens. And I either write it down or I don't, you know, it's just happening. But I guess like why I share music or like what motivates me is to like provide a sense of solace for people. There's nothing more special to me than when there's a 12 year old girl, like at the crowd with her parents, just like that means so much to me because I know what music meant to me at those ages. And like, yeah. It's also just fun. <laughs> like, I think I could have fun doing lots of different things in life, but I'm having fun doing this. 
it feels really important to me and, and true to the moment to just live fully in whatever joy can come my way. Back on the bench, making plans, watching the day end hand in hand. I always had to be home by eight. My dad would kill me if I was late. I'll be going now. You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring Lucy Dacus. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Sound design music was composed by Lily Sloan, with media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. Going on. Yeah, that was the one I think. Yeah, that was great. That's what we were looking for. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Cool. Cool.